to our pulpit this morning, somebody that's certainly not a stranger to us, but uh, we do want to thank Jonathan Williams for taking the time this morning to come and speak to us and bring us God's Word. Well, good morning, everyone. If you would open up your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. First Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 10, and if you're using our pew Bibles, it's page 1848. Please follow along with me as I read. This is the Word of God. If you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to worship you by not only singing songs of praise, but also hearing your word. I pray now that you would bless this time, that you would come and speak through me by the power of your Holy Spirit, that the words that I say would be your words and not mine. Be with us now, for it is in Christ's name and for his sake that I pray. Amen. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a strong man. If you've ever seen him on the TV or in a movie or in any sort of event at all, you know what I'm talking about. His biceps are about as big as my head, and he's the past winner of Mr. Universe, a seven-time winner of Mr. Olympia, And he's a legend in the world of bodybuilding. But that wasn't given to him overnight. It took strict discipline and training to get it. And so what we will see in our text today is to be good servants of Christ Jesus. It takes discipline in the scripture. It takes running after what is eternally beneficial. And it takes the motivation of God's love. So let's look to our text and we will see that we must discipline ourselves in the scripture. We see this in verse, in verse 6 of chapter 4. Paul has been writing to Timothy, and he's been talking about the church. He's been, because Timothy is the pastor of the Ephesian church that Paul planted. He's been telling him how the church ought to run. He's been talking about men and women in Christian community. He's been talking about elders and deacons, who they ought to be. And for the past five verses of chapter 4, he's been spelling out false doctrine. And so now... He tells Timothy that people are going to bring in the teachings of demons into the church. And if those get into his church, it's going to cause serious problems. So that Timothy and his people will be able to fight against this false teaching, and so that you and I will, he tells us that we have to do two things. We have to be aware of false teaching, and we have to diligently study the scriptures. We have to be disciplined in them. The first sentence of verse 6 says this, If you put these things before the brothers, what Paul is telling Timothy to do is to show the the people in his church the false teaching, to let them know what people are trying to bring into the church. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. 
Ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been coming in, seeking to fill the church with lies, seeking to fill the church with false teaching. And in some places, in some denominations, he's, he's worked, and it's happened. And so that we, and so that the people in Timothy's church will not be ignorant of it, he says, tell the church, tell them of the false teaching. So we are to be aware of the false teaching around us. But how? How are we supposed to know what's true about the Bible and what's false? In a world that is so relative, where the philosophy of everything's right, don't worry about it, has not only been in our world, but it's come into the church. How are we supposed to know what's true about the Bible? Well, Paul gives us the answer. In the rest of the verse, he says this, being trained in the words of the faith, and the good doctrine that you have followed. If you look and you'll see that, you'll see that the Greek word for train actually means to be continuously nourished on. That may not be in your Bible, but that's the, that's the idea that it's giving. It's giving the idea of raising a child. Children, if you're a parent, you know they have to constantly be nourished. They need milk, and then they need baby food, and then they need Cheerios, and then they get full-blown steak dinners. They get all these things because they constantly need nourishment. This, the words of faith is a reference to Scripture or the Gospel. Paul is telling us that every day we should be coming to the life-giving fountain of God's Word. And we should be seeking to be fed and nourished on it. We should be daily in the habit of studying God's Word and asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts and our minds to the deep truths that are in it so that we may grow up in our faith daily. We should be studying the Scripture so that we know the good doctrine that's found in it. You will never know what is true about the Bible if you don't do the hard work it takes to know what's in it. Our world tells us that hard work is useless. That's not what God says. One of my favorite phrases about the Bible is someone compares it to a mine shaft. One of my favorite pastors, John Piper, he says... We should be mining the depths of Scripture. That's a great analogy. Because what are found in mines? Diamonds, gold, silver, a bunch of other stuff like that. There are many precious things that are found in a mine. And it takes hard work to get them so that people can enjoy them. And that's the idea that Paul wants us to see here. He's saying that we have to do the hard work of not only reading the Bible to be nourished by the Holy Spirit, but to also find the depths of the truth of Scripture. Paul does not want us to just be content where we are spiritually. He wants us to keep moving. He wants us to continually grow. You wouldn't be happy if your child stayed a baby, would you? You want them to grow up. And that's what Paul is saying to this church that he planted. But that doesn't mean that we have to be 15 hours in the study, reading the Bible and not doing anything else. No, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what Paul is telling us. He is saying that we have to be deeply acquainted and intimately acquainted with the truths that are in God's Word. That's what he wants us to see. And that comes through a daily habit of studying the Scriptures and mining for the truth that is found in it. We need to do this so that we are able to see what the false teaching is. Paul knows that if we build this intimate knowledge of the Word of God, then we will be able to recognize God's Word from the false teaching that's cooked up by men. When we put the time in to be nourished by the Holy Spirit through His Word, 
then we are going to be able to hear people's false doctrine and be able to identify it quickly. Whenever we hear something that doesn't match up with what Scripture teaches, we'll have the reaction of, now that doesn't sound right. But that doesn't happen, beloved, unless we are studying the Word of God. And that is what we must be doing. So it's sort of like a bank teller, like we were telling the children. They've been trained to catch counterfeiters if they come into the bank and try to make transactions with false money. They go through extensive training to be able to spot a fake bill from a real one. And what do you think they study? Do you think they study the fake bills? Or do you think they study the real bills? They study the real bills. They study them down to the smallest detail, all the way down to George's curls, so that they're able to see what is wrong with the fake ones. See, false teaching is constantly changing, constantly moving, constantly shifting. The Word of God remains the same. It never changes. So if you study the truth, you will always be able to spot lies from the truth. So in the same way, if we are able to be intimately acquainted with the Word of God, we will be able to spot false teaching like that. We'll be able to see it when it comes. But how do we do this? How do we get to that point? Well, we have to be reading our Bibles daily. We have to take the time to take that moment of the day to stop and to reflect on the Word of God, diving deep into the Scriptures, and not just to the easy parts. We can't just stick to the New Testament. We have to go to the whole counsel of God. Even though it's sometimes hard, and even though we fall asleep when we read Leviticus, we have to keep moving. We can't just stop. And if we don't understand a portion of Scripture, then that's when we go and we buy a commentary. We go and we talk to our elders. We talk to a friend who is more far along in their Christian walk than us. And we ask them, what does this mean? If you love someone, you get to know them. If you love Christ, you get to know him. You read his 66th book, Love Letter, and you study it. And also, you should be checking what people say against the Bible. That's why we invite you to keep your Bibles open. Though we trust the people who stand up here, we want you to read the Bible. We want you to study it. And if anyone says anything that is contrary to the Word of God, follow God above men no matter what, because He is greater than us. But not only are we to be disciplined by the Scripture and to be nourished by it, but we're also to pursue godliness. We see this in verses 7 through 9. Paul moves on and he starts to tell Timothy and his people that they should have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Now to better spell out what Paul means, we could have said, Godless and foolish old wives' tales. He tells us to strongly reject these things. He's talking about the false teaching he spelled out in the first five verses of chapter 4. He's essentially saying they have no more weight to them than the saying, if you pull out one white hair, ten more will appear. It's obviously not true. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying this false teaching is useless and it's worthless. And you can't build your life on it. Imagine trying to build your life on that. Someone comes to you and they say, hey, what do you think about gay marriage? Or, or, or what do you think about abortion? And all you can look at them and say is, well, all I know is, if you pull out one white hair, ten more are going to appear. It'd be ridiculous. It would make no sense. And that's the idea of what Paul is saying. 
If we follow the false teaching, it's ridiculous. That's what Paul wants us to see. We're not supposed to go through life trying to build our life on a lie. You can't build a true life system on lies because it will crumble. And now you might be saying, I don't do that. I read my Bible. I come to church every Sunday. As well you should. But the point is, false teaching is not always as obvious as a man standing up in church and denying that Jesus is God. A lot of the times, in fact, most of the time, it's far more subtle. It says, go get the new iPhone. You need it. Go get the biggest house. Go get the best car. Go get all this stuff you can't pay for. Go climb the corporate ladder and don't let anyone get in your way. Go follow your heart. Follow the American dream. And lastly, one big one in our society today is, everybody's going to heaven, doesn't matter what they believe. Those things are all false. I'm not saying if you're a CEO, that's a bad thing. We need Christian CEOs. What I'm saying is, the way we go after things is often sinful. And what Paul is saying is, if we try to build our lives on trying to satisfy ourselves, on material possessions, on what our friends think of us, the status of our job, the things that we do, or the thought that, oh, everybody gets into heaven, doesn't matter what they believe, even if they reject Jesus then ultimately we are going to be left broken and disappointed because those things are useless. They're godless old wives' tales. Instead, we should be training ourselves in godliness. By godliness, he means applying the truth of Scripture to our lives. Essentially, he's saying, what you read in that daily study, being disciplined in the Word of God, live it out. Apply it to your feet. Start walking it. That's what he's saying. And so Paul gives the analogy of physical fitness and of training, the training of athletes and soldiers. The type of physical training they go through requires intense discipline and intense sacrifice to accomplish their goals. Soldiers have to leave their families to go to boot camp for extended periods of time. And when they come back, they're crafted into men and women ready to defend their country. My dad was in the Air Force. And when he left, he said he was a chubby young man. When he came back... He said he looked far different, so different, in fact, that my grandmother walked right by him at the airport until he turned around and said, Mama! And then she turned around, and she knew him. He was different. He was a changed man. He looked different. Athletes have to endure long practices and long workouts, craft their diets to get the right nutrients, to have the endurance to go to a Super Bowl or an All-Star game. And all of it comes at the cost of blood, sweat, tears, time, money, all of these things. And Paul uses a phrase to talk about what that's worth. He says, in verse 8, he says, while bodily training is of some value, or little value. He says, all that stuff is good, but it's temporary. By eternal value, that's godliness. Godliness has eternal value. You see, physical training, like I said, it's temporary. I don't care how fit you are. If you're 100 years old, you're not at your physical peak. You deteriorate. Our bodies, they deteriorate. But godliness doesn't. Now, another word for godliness could be sanctification. The Holy Spirit working with us to make us more like Christ. And that lasts forever. And it benefits us, not just in heaven, but also in this life. We are living to please Him now. We are changing to be more like Christ, to be a light and an example for Christ. 
And if we do these things, we do them not so he will accept us, but because we have already been accepted by his sacrifice. We live for godliness because Christ has sacrificed for us and accepted us. And this not only makes us into a better person, it actually makes you less sinful. If you're sitting in this room today and you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you are less sinful than you were when you started. The Holy Spirit has actually done work in your life and you look more like Jesus. There are plenty of times when we don't sin. I think a lot of the times we don't hear that enough. We can hear it too much, but I think we don't hear it enough. Right now, you are closer to Christ. And if you continue in godliness, you grow closer to him. And you also get the great joy of showing people Jesus. And they get to come to faith. And you're that example. But when you die, it doesn't all reset to zero. You don't go all the way back. No, then you're made perfect. In the twinkle of an eye, the Bible says, you're made perfect. And you are you're perfect. You have a perfect relationship with God. And that's the benefit for all eternity. Not that you've earned it. But instead, it was gifted to you by God's grace and by Christ's sacrifice. And we've been freely given that grace so that for all eternity, we will see God's face. That's what we strive for. Paul gives us this assurance by saying that this is something that we can bank on. He says in verse 9, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's in stark contrast to the false teaching he's been saying. He says, this isn't a wives' tale. This is the word of God. That's what Paul is saying. So Paul might have had Olympic athletes in mind. Ephesus was a place where the Olympics was held from time to time, and Paul was there for three years. Entirely possible that Paul went to the Olympics. The part of the Olympics I'm most fascinated with is the diving. I don't know why, but I think it's so cool that they can twist and turn and do all those tricks in the air, and all I can manage to pull off is a cannonball. But they can do all these awesome things. Well, here's what Paul is saying. It takes more discipline for you to not want your neighbor's things, to study God's word, than it takes for a diver to master a triple front flip off of a high dive. Now, that might sound discouraging, because some of you are thinking, I don't even like to work out. There's no way I could be an Olympic athlete. But here's the difference between you and an Olympic athlete is that you have the Holy Spirit. They're doing it all on their own. You have the Holy Spirit. He does 99% of the work. We do one. He does so much for us to make us more like Christ. We have Christ in heaven praying to God the Father for us, interceding on our behalf. We have the promises of God in Scripture that constantly say, you will be glorified you will be with Christ forever, and you will be holy. And the promises of God, they don't fail. So we should apply godliness in our lives by letting God's word define how we live and how we respond to things around us and the people around us. We don't blow up at our kids whenever they annoy us. We don't complain and gossip about our boss when they made a bad decision. We, don't, we, we ask our friends, how are you doing? We give a genuine listening ear, and we actually pray for them. Whenever we say we will. We do all these things, not so that we can get into heaven, but because Christ has saved us. And lastly, we apply every part of the Bible. We don't pick and choose what we like. We submit to it because it's God's word. Because that's what he tells us to do. So this leads to our third and our final point, And we see it in verse 10. That God's love motivates us. 
So many times in our lives we come to church and we, get, we sometimes get a little discouraged because we hear a pastor stand up and say, you have to do this, 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 and this. We read the Bible and we have to do this, 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 and this. And we think, that's impossible. I can't do all that. And what Paul is telling us is the Christian life isn't easy. It's, not, it's the hardest life, especially in a culture that says, you have to have everything right here, right now. Especially in a culture that says, hard work isn't worth it. Just take the easy way out. It'll be better that way. But let's be fully honest, guys. The Christian life, that's harder than any other life. Because the point is, you don't have to study God's word if you don't think it's true. You don't have to not steal, not cheat on your taxes, not do all these terrible things if you don't think they're wrong. It's a fact of life. It takes far more work to be disciplined than it does to be undisciplined. But what Paul says is that we should be disciplined. The word that Paul uses for struggle is actually the word we get agony from. And the point that he's making is this, that it's a struggle to live out godliness. It's a battle to wake up every day to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, please let me not do this sin again. Because sometimes we still like those sins. We still want to do them. So it's a battle. But it's worth it. So we need motivation. We, we have to have motivation to continue this fight. And so Paul gives it to us. He says in verse 10, Our hope is set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now wait a minute. Is Paul saying that everyone goes to heaven? That even people who reject Christ, that say that he's not the Messiah, he's not the Son of God, do they go to heaven? No. That's not what Paul's saying. We know from the rest of what Paul writes, we know from the rest of Scripture, that can't possibly be what Paul means. He's using an argument from the lesser to the greater, essentially saying, if God's going to do this for these people, he will definitely do it for his people. Paul uses it in Romans 8. He uses it in other places in his letters. And what we also have to see is that the word Savior doesn't always have the meaning that we apply, that we always think of. It doesn't always talk about Christ's work for us in saving our sins. It also has the definition of deliverer or preserver. What Paul is saying here is God preserves all people. In Colossians 1.17, it says, In him who is Christ, all things hold together. That song that Jesus holds the world in his hands, it's true. He holds everything in his hand. He holds it all together. The only reason that you and I exist is because Jesus keeps us here. That's one of the points that Paul is making, that God is going to preserve all people. But he says that he'll do it even more for believers. And let's think about it for a second. We all get a thing called common grace. We all get God's kindness and his goodness. Yesterday, rain fell on everyone's yard, not just the people who love God. People who vehemently hate God have a job, a house, a wife, kids, many other things, food on their table, and they don't care anything about God. And God blesses them. God gives them kindness and goodness. But what he's saying is, even though everyone on earth experiences God's grace and goodness in one way, <coughs> his people experience it in a much different and better way. Those that love Christ and believe in Him and are striving to be like Him, they receive God's grace in the sense that He will preserve us all the way till the end. God's not going to kick you out of the kingdom because you messed up today. 
God's not going to disown you because you don't live up to his perfect standard. He knows everything. He knows you're not going to. And he still loves you. He's not going to decide that you're not worth it and that you're not, worth, you're not worth all the work it takes to get you. I mean, he already died for you. He's going to keep you in his love and his goodness and his grace, not only until you die, but for all eternity. That's the motivation. That's what keeps us going. We realize, absolutely, it's a process to be more like Christ, not something that happens overnight. And there are times that we succeed. Don't leave here thinking you never succeed. There are times you don't sin, but there are times we absolutely sin, and we need motivation when we fall. So when we do have that motivation of Christ holding us, the Holy Spirit keeping us in his grace, we can be bolder, not to sin more, but to strive for Christ more. And when we fall and we fail, we can ask for forgiveness and keep striving. If you've ever been to the circus, you've probably seen an acrobatic show. And they twist and they turn and they do all these crazy things on a trapeze and we gasp and we cheer for excitement whenever they make it. And sometimes they fall, right? Most of the time, unless they're just crazy, they have a net. When they hit the net, they bounce right back up and they keep going. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is living life with a net. It's having the net of God's preserving love under you so that when you do try something that is extremely hard to do, and if you make it, amazing, hallelujah. And if you miss it, Christ is going to preserve you. He doesn't just drop you. So we fall into the net of God's preserving love, we bounce back up, and we continue to strive for Christ. So as you go through life, seeking to not be more easily angered, seeking to be more like Christ, trying not to blow up with people, trying to be content with what you have in a world says, go get, that says, go get more, go get more, trying to not do the countless other sins that we do daily. Remember your motivation. Remember that when you fall, you're not kicked out of the kingdom. Jesus doesn't say he's done with you. He does the opposite. He picks you up, he dusts you off, puts you back on the road, and then he walks with you throughout all eternity. And we should not fail to pray and ask for forgiveness when we fall and we fail, because that's part of preservation. But we should remember our motivation. So in closing, we need to ask ourselves two questions. Are we going to be disciplined in the scriptures? Are we going to follow God? Are we going to apply godliness in our lives? Are we going to rest in the preserving grace of God? Or are we going to be people that are motivated by our own self-interest, who strive in ourselves, and we, go and we rest in our own power? Those are the choices for us today. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not leave us without your truth. We pray that you would help us to daily seek out your word. We seek to be people who are disciplined, and we shape our lives by the Scripture. We ask for your Spirit's help to rest in what you tell us in your word, that you do not leave us or forsake us, but rather you keep us in your love, from which nothing can separate us. Lord, mold us into good servants in our workplaces and in our homes. It's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen.